The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Well, good morning. Welcome once again to Harmony Bible Church. My name is Jason Polly, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this morning. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the grace you have given us to gather and meet here and to to just lift up the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray, as I prayed earlier, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Father God, I pray for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world right now, that you would be with them as well, that your gospel would be proclaimed and that lives would be changed. God, we know that your word says that you can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, and that's what we're praying for in this service, that you would do more than we could ask or imagine in our lives. God, that we would, as we interact with your word, that we would grow by it, be transformed by it, and that we would leave here changed people because of you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago with our sermon series titled Rooted in Truth based on the book of 2 Peter. So as always, let's do a little bit of review of the information we've covered thus far. In the first chapter, Peter focuses on the provision, the power, and the promises of the gospel. He reminds us of our need to have genuine faith, faith that is real, and faith that is rooted in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as we moved into chapter 2, we noticed a continuance of the same theme, but a change in approach. While chapter 1 is largely positive reinforcement, instructing us to persevere in truth, chapter 2 is negative reinforcement, instructing us to avoid error. So two weeks ago, the last time we were in 2 Peter, uh, Peter warned us of the dangers of false teachers. Remember, he said, false teachers hide in plain sight. He said, they are among you and they secretly introduce destructive heresies. Number two, he said, false teachers deny Christ's authority. He said they deny the Master who bought them. They don't submit to His Lordship. And number three, He said false teachers exploit the church. He said, remember, many will follow and they'll exploit you with false words. And with that background in mind, let's look at our text this morning. With the background of false teachers, let's look at our text. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses... uh, 3b through 10. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're actually going to start halfway through verse 3. Look at the second half of verse 3 and then carry it through to verse 10. It says, Their greed from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word this morning. Amen. You may be seated. So Peter transitions from this danger of false teachers to the destruction of false teachers at the end of verse 3. The reason for picking up at 3b is because we need to see that Peter's transitioning here in this verse, at the end of this verse, and he says their judgment, the false teachers' judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter is letting his readers know that these false teachers have not gone unnoticed by God. You know, it's easy to look at the world around us and and see the wicked prosper and begin to question God. We begin to say, really, is God really just? Is He really going to punish those who persevere in unrighteousness? And yet Peter says, yes. Yes, they will. He says their judgment from long ago is not idle. He wants us to know that God has long ago said that false teachers will indeed face God's judgment. And he also says that God is actively bringing about that judgment in their lives. If you look at Jeremiah 8, verses 8-13, through it says, How can you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame, and they are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially by saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. And they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. And at the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, says the Lord. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the tree. And the leaf will wither. And what I have given them will pass away. You see, even in the Old Testament, we see that the the wicked sometimes prospered for a period of time, but God reminds His people through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, yes, they may prosper for a time, but the things that I have given them, they will pass away. There's a day coming, a day of judgment. And the same is true today. False teachers have been declared guilty. And though it may look like they're prospering, God is actively judging them. And that judgment will one day be fully realized. That's why Peter says not only is their judgment not idle, but also their destruction is not asleep. John MacArthur does a good job painting a picture here of the meaning of this phrase when he says the following. He says, with the words, destruction is not asleep, Peter personifies eternal damnation as if it were an executioner. An executioner who remains fully awake and ready to administer God's just sentence of condemnation for those who falsify His Word. So the end of verse 3 is kind of a transition statement, if you will, where Peter introduces what he is about to say in verses 4-10. through He does so by saying that God's judgment against false teachers was made long ago, and it's active. It's not idle. 
and it will one day be brought to completion by their eternal destruction in hell. So as we move into verses 4-10, through 10, the first point in our sermon outline is God's past judgment. Number one, God's past judgment. In these verses, verses 4-10, through 10, we see a classic if-then statement. Peter says, For if God, verse 4, has destroyed some and delivered others in the past, he goes on to describe these judgments, if God has done this, then, verse 9, the Lord will do the same in the future. He says, if then this, what, this is what will happen. So Peter gives us three examples of God's past judgment. Number one, the example of the judgment of the fallen angels. First, let's look at this judgment of the fallen angels. Peter says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. I don't want to spend a ton of time here Right? Because I don't want to get so bogged down in the details of what Peter might be talking about that we miss what he's clearly saying. There's a great deal of debate about this passage. And there's a great deal of debate as to which angels Peter is actually referring to and what it is they did. We know from Revelation that a third of the angels fell from heaven. And those angels followed Lucifer. And when they did, they became evil. They're, they're then described as evil spirits and demons that wreak havoc on the world and on the church today. It may be that that's what's being spoken of here when these angels sinned, but it may not be. Some would argue, no, because these angels have not been committed to to pits of darkness. They're not in hell, those angels. They're free. The demons are free to roam and and wreak uh, destruction, to, to wreak havoc on the church and the world. But instead, that there's a different group of angels here. The corresponding description in Jude, verse, Jude 6 and 7 gives us a few additional details. Jude 6 through 7 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way, indulging, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. See, Many argue that the account that Peter and Jude are both referring back to is found in Genesis 6, 1-4. And there's some legitimacy for this argument, especially since in Peter's text and in Genesis 6, following that text about these fallen angels is the account of the flood in both places. There's also some intertestamental writing that seems to indicate this view. If you uh, understand what intertestamental writing is, it's writing that existed between the Old and New Testaments. There's about 400 years of silence from when the Old Testament was completed to when the New Testament started, to when Jesus came and lived among us. And in that 400 years, there's no Scripture, but there are other writings. And some of these writings seem to point to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So let's look at this text. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. To see if this is indeed what Peter is referring to. My Bible is a little messed up here. It looks like it might have gotten thrown around earlier or something. I'm not sure. For those of you who are in Sunday school, you understand that. Joke Genesis 6, 1 through 4. 
Now it came about when, man, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So some would argue that Peter is talking about these angels, these specific sons of God in this text. Others would argue that sons of God here refers to men from the godly line of Seth. That Descendants of Seth were considered sons of God. They were the righteous line of Seth. And they married the ungodly line of Cain. They married women from the ungodly line of Cain. Hence, intermarriage between believers, if you will, and non-believers. Righteous and unrighteous. And if that's the case, that would mean that Genesis 6, 1-4 has nothing to do with what Peter is saying because it doesn't refer to angels at all. But if the sons of God referenced here are actual angels, then others argue that it's talking about angels who cohabitated with women. Angels who actually cohabitated. They left their proper abode and they had relations with human women by maybe possessing a human body as demons can possess human bodies today. Now, in defense of each argument, the term sons of God can be used to describe men or angels. So that that term doesn't really clarify. We see that term used in both senses. And then to complicate things, we have to ask the question, who are these Nephilim anyway? In verse 4, he says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Genesis. Right? Some would say that these individuals were were individuals whose fathers were fallen angels and their mothers were human women. They were a kind of superhuman race, if you will. They had angels for fathers and women for mothers. And others would argue, no, that they were individuals who had ungodly or godly fathers and ungodly mothers because they intermarried. And then others say, no, this isn't related to the sons of God at all. That all that Genesis says was, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days doesn't say that they were the sons of these uh, sons of God, that they're descendants of sons of God, just that they were there. This happened when these Nephilim, whoever these Nephilim are, were on the earth. Clear as mud, right? It's confusing. And even in listening and working through this text, I think Alistair Begg had a, had a great point as I'm working through this text this week. He said, he said, if you're, if you're eating a fish and you get to a bone, right? Lay the bone aside and focus on what's in front of you. Focus on the meal in front of you. If you have time later, come back and fiddle with the bone. But do that later. Don't miss the meal. And that's what I want to focus on. Not, not the, the specifics of what's being talked about here. I want to start, I want to come back to where I started. I don't want to get bogged down in the details of what Peter might be referring back to and miss what he's clearly saying and what he's saying is that God judged angels who sinned imagine angels angels who were revered as higher than us 
Peter says, God judged angels. He wants us to know that nobody, no being is above God's judgment. God judged the angels who didn't follow him. And having used the example of fallen angels, Peter now uses the example of the ancient world. In verse 5, he says that God, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood, a flood, upon the world of the ungodly. Clearly, Peter is referring back to Genesis 6-7 through here. Peter reminds his readers that with the exception of a few, God destroyed the entire world. Look at Genesis 7, 21 through 24 with me. And we begin to see even here why many have argued that these fallen angels were the angels in Genesis 6 because clearly the account of Noah follows right after this. In Genesis 7, we read this, 21 through 24. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind and all that was dry on the ground of the land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life died. Thus He blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. We're all familiar with the story of Noah, right? And we've all seen the cute little cartoonish Noahs, right? Painted on the walls. right? The cute little arks filled with smiling animals. We buy our kids toys of little boats and little two, you know, animals, two of each animal. We've all seen it painted on nursery walls and churches. But when was the last time you saw a painting of mass destruction with dead bodies floating on the surface of the water? You know, I I saw a YouTube video of a woman who was mocking Christianity and said, you know, the account of Noah is horrific. It's really a horrific story. And Christians, they promote this among their children. They might as well put horror movie posters on their children's walls. And in some sense, I think she's right. I think she actually understands the account of Noah better than we do as Christians who sit in churches. We've somehow glorified this account to make it this cute little story. You know, we've seen the horrors of major floods in recent years. The destruction that was caused by some of the tsunamis around the world or what Hurricane Katrina did to the city of New Orleans, which is still not what it was. And in Genesis 6-7, through we see the entire earth covered with water. Peter, as he's writing this, is undoubtedly remembering when Jesus related the flood of Noah's day to the coming day of judgment. Peter remembers the words of Jesus. And he thinks back as he's writing this and remembers Matthew 24. 24, 36-42. He remembers the words of Christ. Where Jesus says this. Verse 
But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day of Noah that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Peter undoubtedly remembered the words of Jesus as he's writing this account of God judging the ancient world. See, the account of God judging the ancient world is not a cute bedtime story. It's an account of the entire world being judged. And finally, Peter turns to the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. So first he said, the angels, God will will judge the angels. And then he says, God will judge, His judgment will extend to the entire world as in the days of Noah. And then finally, he turns to the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verses 6-8 through eight with me in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2, verses 6-8. through eight. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while, while living among them, felt his soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The background of this account is seen in Genesis 13. Genesis 13, verses 5-12 through 12 say this, Now Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, Genesis says. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Scripture tells us that the area of Sodom and Gomorrah was well watered everywhere and good for raising livestock and producing crops. Genesis goes so far as to say it was like the garden of the Lord. Pointing back to the Garden of Eden, he says Sodom and Gomorrah, that land was like the garden of the Lord. It's an area that had seen God's favor. And in that day, a well-watered land was a source of wealth and prosperity much like lands with natural resources prosper today. But then in verse 13, Genesis goes on to tell us, Now the men of Sodom were wicked 
exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. See, we don't know the full extent of their sin, but we do know that it included sexual perversion. Maybe, maybe just like those of the fallen angels. And maybe that's why Peter mentioned the fallen angels in the first place. Because the sin that was known for those fallen angels was was cohabitating with human women. We don't know that, but we know for sure that there's a strong undercurrent of sexual sin through this book of 2 Peter. And it comes to fruition next week. We really see it next week. Just a word of warning as you bring your kids to church. There's some pretty graphic language in Peter's letter. We do know that it included sexual perversion here in Sodom and Gomorrah. For when we get to Genesis 19, 1-7, we read this. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground and said, Behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people of every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Some have argued in an effort to redefine sexual morality that the sin in this passage is not sexual in nature at all. But instead, these major denominations have argued this, by the way. This is major denominations have said, this isn't sexual sin. Instead, the, the sin that's being spoken of here is a lack of hospitality. That Sodom and Gomorrah were judged because they weren't hospitable to these angels who came and visited. This is ridiculous. Those who say such things are shaping their theology to fit their behavior, just as the false teachers of Peter's day were. Just as it's our temptation to do the same thing, to shape our theology, to reshape what Scripture clearly says to fit what we want to do. Again, it comes back to the saying in my house, I want what I want, and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. And therefore, we justify, we redefine what Scripture says to to have what we want to have. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were blessed to live in a land that God had abundantly blessed them with. And yet, they ignored Him and followed their own lusts. That sound familiar? It should. We live in a country with great resources, great promise, great history, blessed by the Lord. And yet, we ignore Him and want to follow our own lusts. We live in a world that is, and a country that is blessed beyond measure, and yet, we legalize the killing of babies, the mass murder of babies. We call it abortion. We legalize gay marriage. 
And we redefine what Scripture says. Even in our churches. This is not just the secular world doing this. This is the churches saying, well, let's really look at what Scripture says. The sin of Sodom was a lack of hospitality. It's nonsense. Genesis 19, 24-25 says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Archaeologists have been unable to determine the exact location of these cities. We don't even know for sure where they are. For as Peter says, they were reduced to ashes. Nothing remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter reminds his readers that God in an act of judgment, completely and utterly destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So now turn to the second point in your sermon outline. We saw God's past judgment. Now we look at God's coming judgment. I've mentioned before that Peter doesn't seem to spend much time in this letter talking about what these false teachers were actually teaching. Peter doesn't really focus on the actual teaching. He doesn't say, well, they're teaching this, and therefore that's wrong. He focuses more on their immoral behavior. However, I think their behavior gives us a great deal of information about what they believed. Throughout the book, we see this thread of false teachers following their own fleshly lusts and not submitting to God because they doubted God's coming judgment. Look at 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. We get a little bit of a clue as we look ahead. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter says, mockers are going to come. They're going to say, there's no day of judgment Everything is going on just as it was before. And Peter wrote that just a few years after Jesus. Imagine how many more people can look back now and say, it's been 2,000 years since that was written. There's no coming judgment, you Christians. Peter reminded his readers of the fallen angels, the flood of Noah's day, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because he wanted them to know that a final day of judgment is coming. 2 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. He said, if, 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 verses 4 through 8. And then verse 9, he says, if this is going to happen, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Peter says, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Don't listen to the false teachers. Those who deny that day and therefore do as they wish. Or do as they wish and then therefore deny that day. They may deny it's coming, but they will not escape it. And unfortunately, when we fast forward 2,000 years to today, false teachers who still deny God's judgment are still bringing their destructive heresies on the church. You know, it's not popular to preach on hell. It's not popular to preach on this kind of a message of God's judgment. His coming day of judgment. 
It's not popular to say that if God judged the angels and He destroyed the entire ancient world and if He rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, what makes you think He won't judge the world again? But you know what? I'm not in this for a popularity contest. I'm not. It's what 2 Peter says. And frankly, you asked me to preach through 2 Peter. You said at the end of 1 Peter, let's look at 2 Peter. Okay, let's look at 2 Peter. This is what Scripture teaches. And the church, in an effort to reach people by bringing a more positive message, seems to have largely abandoned the preaching of God's coming judgment. And where has it gotten us? Really, where has it gotten the church that we no longer preach of God's coming judgment? Is the church stronger or weaker because of it? And every day, I believe that we depart from this teaching the church gets weaker. Peter warns us and warns the false teachers of a coming day of judgment. The question is, are more people truly reached for Christ when we don't warn them? You see, false teachers deny the Master who, who bought them. They deny Christ's authority over their lives. And then, they, they form theology to fit that denial. They form theology to fit their behavior. Versus Christians who are called to recognize that judgment is real. And then shape their lives around their theology. We don't shape our theology around what we want to do. Instead, we shape what we want to do around our theology. But in the midst of all this bad news, there's also good news. Praise God. Praise God. God, we must not forget that verse 5 says, but God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And verses 7 through 9 says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. We may be tempted to follow our own way. We may be tempted to deny the Master who bought us with His own blood, but we must realize that the Lord will rescue the godly. And what's remarkable about this text is that Noah and Lot are the examples of the godly is that Noah and Lot are pointed to as Peter's examples. Some have argued that Noah was righteous and therefore found favor with God. I don't buy that. That's not the way Genesis 6 describes it. Genesis 6, if you look at verses 8-9, through 9, first verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. First he found favor. Then, verse 9 says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. First, the Lord's favor was on Noah. Then he was declared righteous. It's not that Noah was righteous. So when we teach our kids, Noah was righteous, be like Noah. We do a huge disservice. A huge, huge disservice. The Lord's favor was upon Noah. That's why he was righteous. To say, Noah was righteous, therefore God's favor was on him. That's a different religion, folks. That's not Christianity. That's moralism. Noah wasn't good. Jesus said, there's none good but God. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even then, even if you don't buy that, and you say, no, Noah was righteous, right? There's Lot. The guy who selfishly argues with Abram over which land he's going to get. Right? The guy who offers his daughters to the Sodomites and says, no, here, I'll get a couple of virgins, go and take them. The guy who, after all this, gets rescued by God, gets so drunk that his daughters come into his tent and sleep with him, and he doesn't even know it. Two nights in a row. Yet Peter calls him righteous. That is good news. Peter calls Lot and Noah righteous because they weren't righteous in and of themselves. They were declared righteous because of their faith. So we too are not righteous in and of ourselves. Instead, Romans 5, 6-9 tells us, for a while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's good news, folks. We shall be saved from this coming judgment, not because of our righteousness, not because I preached a sermon, not because Bill Batty taught a Sunday school class or served as a deacon, not because you attended this church, but because of Jesus' blood. You're justified by His blood, and we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him alone. Praise God. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, I just encourage you. I encourage you to recognize that you are indeed a sinner. That God has said that His law, no one has met His law. If we just peer at the Ten Commandments, we see that we've all told lies. We've all stolen. That we all lust after things that are not ours. That we've all committed sin. We've broken God's law. And God sent the perfect sacrifice to die in our place. Imagine a courtroom where we're guilty before the judge, and Jesus comes in and says, I'll take the punishment. Praise God, that's what He did on that cross, and He defeated death by being raised from the dead that third day, and He's coming back. He's coming back to fix that which is broken in this world. Praise Him for that. And for those of us who have placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who do know Him as our Lord and Savior, How do we apply all of this, both individually and collectively? How do we as a church apply this text? First, we must remember that though the wicked prosper for a time, they will one day face God's righteous judgment. And in some sense, that gives us some relief. Because we want righteousness to reign and rule. But in another sense, it should grieve us. We must lovingly warn them of judgment, the judgment that is to come and the rescue that's provided through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must persevere in godliness. We must persevere in godliness, knowing that our righteousness will not save us. For only the blood of Christ can do that. But that we were bought with a price, therefore we were called to live lives that glorify Him. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I just thank You 
I thank you for the then in this passage. The then you know how to rescue the godly and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God, I pray that we would be serious about sharing that coming day of judgment with the world around us and the rescue that is provided through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would live godly lives looking forward to that day, knowing, knowing, Lord, that we were bought with a price. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.